this um, this psalm it, like that um, the hymn the song we just sung was the words as Catherine said were by Martin Luther which he pretty much took exactly from this psalm and so a lot of what I want to talk about this morning is the um, what others have called the the genius of of Martin Luther's theology uh, what why was he so attracted to this psalm in particular that he that he wrote one of his best known hymns about it and it also reminds me of the um, uh, Luke chapter 18 and the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee uh, it's kind of a an example of that really where if you might remember the uh, the two men going to the temple to pray and the, the Pharisee um, very self-righteously saying Lord I thank you that it, that I'm such a good man basically and that I'm not like this this tax collector whereas the tax collector wouldn't even lift his face to heaven and he, he looked at his feet and beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And uh, that kind of comes out in, in this psalm. You know, uh, Luther, uh, I assume you all know who I'm talking about, but perhaps some of the, some of the kids don't so much. Uh, the, the guy who really um, not only changed the church but changed the world in, uh, in the year 1517 when he nailed his theses to the to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral and uh, and sort of kicked off the Reformation. Um, what was it that that, that attracted uh, Luther to this psalm? I mean, he didn't, Luther didn't invent a new theology or anything. He simply went back to the Bible uh, and uh, uh, and said what he th thought deeply about these things and and uh, and he had a way of relating to the common man. And I think that's why he w he was successful, whereas others before him had kind of just that there, there had been other great people before Luther who'd had similar thoughts, but they never really went anywhere. Um, whereas Luther could relate to the common man. Uh, I, I love his uh, I've, I've shared with you before his saying about prayer, when when he said. I wish I wish I could pray in the same way that my dog looks at a piece of meat. You know, it, it's such a lovely, earthy sort of thing that we can all understand. Um, I mean, you know, Luther wasn't without faults. A, a lot of you, anybody who knows anything about him, he, he said a lot of things which were pretty controversial as well, and and uh, and were in some ways out of character with with the rest of rest of his thing. But but. Uh, yeah, he's a he's a guy who's who's worth listening to. So, let's go through Psalm one thirty and and see why uh, Luther was so attracted to it. O out of the depths, the depths of despair, the depths of maybe of sickness, of of poverty, of uh, of trial, but most of all, I think the depths of conviction of one's own sin. Uh, last week, you know, Matt talked to us about Psalm 51, and David, when he was convicted of his sin, it, it kind of, this is kind of where he was at. He would, he he was appealing to God out of the depths of his knowledge of his own sin, because without forgiveness, he knew that he was he was completely lost. He knew he was separated from God forever. You know, he health and wealth and the easy life never produce prayer out of the depths do they that's right isn't it have you ever 
Have you ever prayed crying out to God sincerely and asking him for something when everything's going well? It, it, it just doesn't happen, does it? Um, but so out of the depths, I, I cry to you, O Lord. Uh, if you've got your Bible open there, you'll notice that Lord is spelt with capital letters, so that means the translators, that's how they translate Yahweh. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the maker of all things. Where else can you go? Where else can you go? What, what is the use of crying out to your money or your wealth? Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73. Look, sometimes um, when, we, when we are crying out to God from the depths, uh, uh, the depths of sickness perhaps or misfortune or uh, when things have gone wrong, when bad things happen, we, we're tempted to say, well, why me, God? Why, is this, why have you let this happen to me? Uh, th this implies that God is somehow accountable to us, uh, that he has to give a reason for the, to us for, for his actions. But, but then we should think, well, who is really God, him or us? Um, you know, one approach that people take is to say that God is not involved in such things. Uh, that, that God has nothing to do with bad things, only good things. And now that has, has the appearance of kind of letting God off the hook, I suppose, but, but it, it, and, it, and it does make him less threatening and maybe less frightening. But it also says that God is, is not all-powerful, um, that, that he can't stop bad things happening to us, that, they just, that it's just chance and... And, and that there's nothing God can do about it. In fact, it really means that God is not God at all. But the Bible tells us that, that God never, never leaves us, even when it appears otherwise. He continues to love us. And, and God remains Lord of all, even in the evil day. He is still Lord. But sometimes his way of doing things lie beyond what we can grasp, what we can discern. And so then we live by faith and not by sight. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Now you notice there that Lord is spelt not with capital letters. So that's Adonai, which is a, a term that can be used for any earthly king or, or power. But this, is the, this time the, the psalmist is applying it to the one who is really king the one who is Lord of all, king of everything, as, a, as opposed to, to earthly kings and lords. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You know, you know it sounds a bit like, like the psalmist is saying, well, God, wake up, you're not listening. But that's not at all what he's doing here. What he's doing is preparing us for, for what comes next, really. Um, because we know that there is no, no prayer at all that Yahweh doesn't know about um, what so the writer is saying well uh, look people who are, who are singing this song who are reading this this psalm uh, what comes next is why God will listen to us um, and so and kind of this is where where we get into into the Luther's theology 
I mean, there's, Luther said that there is no reason at all that God should pay any attention to our cry for mercy because we've forfeited that right. Every human that's ever lived has forfeited that right because none of us is good enough to ask God for anything. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 3. In other words, what I just said, no one is good enough to ask God for anything because he, and he owes us nothing at all. And yet, he does listen to us. Not, not because he doesn't know about our many sins. Oh, he, he knows. He knows. And not because he pretends that we're not actually sinners like some sort of unjust judge who, who overlooks his own speeding ticket. No, the, the only reason he listens to our cries and our prayers from out of the depths, our prayers from the heart, is because God our Father has provided a way for sinners to be forgiven while at the same time not pretending that our sin doesn't exist. In other words, he maintains his justice. And this is where, uh, where Luther discerned the, 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 the brilliance of Christianity as compared to any other religion because other religions offer forgiveness, but it's in the way of an unjust judge because there is no way of forgiving someone and not paying a price unless it's the way that God chose to do that. Like Islam, for instance, says, says that we can be forgiven by God, but it's an unjust forgiveness because there's no, there's no, it's like sin has just been winked at and forgotten. You know, the, you might have heard of Dr. Paul White. He, was, uh, he wrote a series of books called the Jungle Doctor books. Uh, he was a CMS missionary in the, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Uh, when he was, he was home on leave in Sydney, he, uh, he was absentmindedly driving his car one day and went over the speed limit and a policeman pulled him over and gave him a speeding ticket. But the policeman happened to recognise him and knew that, he, that, that Dr White was a friend of, uh, of the police commissioner. So when he got back to the, the when the policeman got back to to headquarters, he gave the speeding ticket to the uh, commissioner of police and said, "I I booked this guy for speeding today. I know you happen to know him." And uh, the commissioner took the ticket and and he wrote a letter to Dr. White and said, uh, "It's been brought to my attention that you were booked for speeding today." And he said, "It is entirely within my power to throw it in the bin." and you, won't, you, could, you would be free to go your way. But he said that would not be just. It would not be fair on everyone else who is booked. However, also within my power is to pay your fine for you, and that is what I have done, so you are free to go. And that's kind of how, that's, that's the, the beauty of the cross, uh, that the price has been paid for us, and yet justice is still being done. And Luther said that the promises of God go right through the Bible and that they are personal promises, i.e. they are promises that are made to me personally. In the Gospel, God promises that we will inherit eternal life and that we are children who will inherit a kingdom along with our brother, Christ. And actually, these promises are not just for the future. We tend to think of them that way, but they're not. 
His promise is a creative word, just like when God spoke in Genesis. It's a creative word that has immediate and present effect on our lives now. For God's people, us, the judgment has already happened. And we are declared innocent. Because God, in the person of his son Jesus, suffered the punishment that we deserved. That's Luther's, what Luther called the great exchange, where he took my sin and in exchange he gave me his righteousness. God speaks his word and declares us innocent and his word has power. When he speaks, things happen. Luther said, when God says, son, shine, the sun is there at once and it shines. So what we're talking about here is justification. And that's a subject that Luther had a lot to say about. He said that justification is not a process, it's not the beginning of a process or the end of a process or it's not part way through a process. It's not because, like justification is not because we have become more righteous. Rather, it establishes this entirely new situation. We are now, as we are, if you are saved, we are now simultaneously both righteous and sinful. Luther said, though I, though I am a sinner in myself, I am not a sinner in Christ. We are sinners in the eyes of the law and the world and even ourselves, but at the same time, we are a saint in the eyes of God. Amazing. Now, L Luther didn't mean that we are partially righteous and partially sinner as if we are sort of on the way to righteousness. The Christian is now 100% righteous in the eyes of God, while still sinful in ourselves. Now, there are those who, who say that perfection is possible in this life, that if we just try hard enough, we can live a completely sinless life. Well, I don't believe them. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just too sinful, but I don't believe them. You know, when the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin, that kind of implies to me that he was different to us. A person who accepts God's gracious judgment takes the risk of living before God on no other basis than the righteousness of Christ which God imputes to me, to him, to, to her, gives to us. We live before God on, the, on no other basis than that God has given us the righteousness of Christ. We have nothing in ourselves for living in confidence and joy before our maker. You know, the fashion these days is to, um, to find yourself. That's what we're told to do. We must find ourselves. We must 
must be true to ourselves. But if we look within ourselves, we'll only find anxiety and, and mortal sin and condemnation and unbelief. But believers, like you and me, will not find peace that way. You're not going to find peace by looking inside yourself, but only by looking at Christ as we find him in the Bible. Anyone who trusts in him will not have, have to face the last, last judgment with any doubt as to the outcome. Our own opinion of ourselves or, or what other, thinks of us, other people think of us is, is irrelevant. And so we wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Verse 6. You know, it's probably hard for us who live in a, a peaceful country to, to, to understand the, the, what the writer is getting at there. But imagine being on the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies, and it's a dark night and you can't see what's happening. You long for the morning to see, to see what's happening. I remember reading about some people who were wrecked in a, a shipwreck in the, uh, in the 1800s on their way to Australia and in the middle of the night came up against a rocky shore and, and their ship being crashed over by waves and they clinging to the spars and, and the wreckage. And I remember reading that they, they prayed for the morning to come so at least they could see their situation. That, that's what this, that verse is getting at. We wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. So what then is sanctification? Luther said this, As faith grows, we do not become more righteous, but it does produce more fruit. Sanctification is not the process of, of moving from, say, 23 to 35% righteous. That's not what sanctification is. The Christian is 100% righteous, 100% holy, sanctified by God. And now he tries to show that righteousness to make it known in daily life. And so the new creature, the new creation, expresses itself in new and more good works. But they do not make us a new creation. We are already a new creation in Christ. Look, uh, a Christian is always going to struggle with sin in this life. Our struggle is a bit like a, a major battle. Like, I don't know how much history of World War II you know, but the Battle of the Bulge uh, was where, it, in 1940, early 1945, Hitler threw everything he had left in one last desperate attempt to stop the Allies approaching into Germany. And for a while, the Allies were rattled they were driven back and, and the Battle of the Bulge sort of waxed and waned over several weeks. But in the end, there, there was the victory. And it's like that with the Christian life. We advance, we make advances, but then we have setbacks, even serious setbacks, when we fall into some grievous sin. But the, at that point, the Holy Spirit rushes in like reinforcements, bringing repentance and hatred of our own sin and a desire to try harder next time. It shouldn't produce despair as our righteousness is in Christ. 
That's when we get it wrong is when we think, oh, no, I've done this again. Yet again, God, how can you put up with me? But that's when we think our righteousness is not in me, it is in Christ. The time to worry is when the struggle ceases, when we stop struggling with sin. I mean, that's what atheists do. They just say that sin, there's no such thing as sin. And so they don't struggle against it. We can't see the righteousness that Christ has closed us with. We believe it through faith. If we try to see our righteousness by looking at our, our perfect lives, we'll go, you're going to be disappointed. But God's people know who they are and so they try to act like it. Like a good tree that produces good fruit. So obedience to God's commands comes from faith, not the other way around. God justifies sinners. God justifies sinners. This is not some airy-fairy, hopeful, wishful thinking. It is a statement of fact. Because God's word of forgiveness has the power to recreate a person, to kill the old one and bury him in baptism, and then raise him up with Christ, a new man, a new woman. This, this is true even despite his ongoing struggle with sin and that he can still feel sinful. O Israel, hope in the Lord, and in his word I hope. For Luther, scripture and, and Christ could not be separated. Christ was God's ultimate communication of his will. Christ, the word made flesh. He acted to restore humans through his life and death and resurrection. And scripture brings this saving message to subsequent <coughs> generations. Excuse me. Scripture has absolute authority in the church. Even though throughout the last 2,000 years we've been tempted to have other authorities. The church at various times and places has has thought, well, no, we need to give equal weight to reason or our intellect or tradition or Pope-type figures. We should not be surprised that the God who used the cross as his way of redeeming the creation would also give us his word as the authority. We, you know, sometimes we admit it frustrates us and seems foolish to the world. Look, some churches say that we should give equal weight to the, the, the long traditions of the church. But this is no different to teaching what seems good to us because with a careful search you can find a tradition that suits your the theology. So in the end we have God's word as the only unchanging revelation of himself. You know, a friend of mine, I was having this discussion with a friend of mine a few years ago and, uh, and I stressed to him the importance of scripture. And he said, well, I don't see it that way. He said, I, I just say, well, in every situation, well, what would Jesus do? Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, yes, it's a good thought. But I said to him, well, how do you know what Jesus would do? How do you know what Jesus was, it, is like? Take away the Bible and you have, you have what? your own feelings about what Jesus would do? 
your own thoughts, your own ideas. That lets you make Jesus into whatever you want, and that's idolatry. No, go to the ancient way. Go where the good way is and walk in it. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We'll jump forward a couple of hundred years to, from Luther to Spurgeon. He said this, My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or how I feel or what I know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done and what he is now doing for me. My, my sister yesterday sent me a little video of Alastair Begg preaching. You might have seen it. I, I remember seeing it myself a few years ago. And he's talking about the old question of if you roll up in heaven and the angel on the gate says to you, why should I let you in here? What would your answer be? And uh, Alastair Begg said, well, if you start to answer that question in the first person, if you say, well, I... I have faith, I have trust, well then you've failed. We have to answer that question in the third person because he died for me and it's his righteousness. And he went on to talk about the thief on the cross rolling up at the gates of heaven and the angel saying, well, why should we let you in here? And, and the thief saying, well, well, I don't know. And they said, well, which church did you go to? No, I never went to church. Um, were you baptised? No. Uh, did you go to a Bible study? No. Did you even read the Bible? No. Well, why should we let you in? I'll have to go and get my supervisor and ask about this. And he said, well, you should, I don't know why you should let me in, but that guy, the guy on the cross next to me, he said I can come in. That's the, the message of Psalm 130. Don't look at yourself. Look at Christ. Amen.